0: These aren't the stories your mother told you. No, these are the other stories. (laughs) Cleanse. Written by Matt Butcher. Narrated by Joseph Maudsley. Who knew that an abundance of medicine would be the cause of the greatest viral outbreak since the Spanish flu? An overuse of antibiotics, even for the smallest of viral illnesses, paved the way for antibiotic-resistant superviruses. They were only subtle mutations of what had been current vaccinations of the influenza virus. But these changes had rendered them incurable, for enough time to create death tolls in the hundreds of thousands. This had rocked the first world countries affected as these kinds of numbers were usually only associated with the developing world, somewhere safely out of sight and mind. Over the subsequent months, various departments under the umbrella of DEFRA successfully trialed and released vaccinations for all of these deadly viruses, all except one. American flu, as it had imaginatively been titled, still ran rampant. Every time an antivirus was released to the public, it had adapted in response, mutating into something faster-acting and more contagious with each change. Quarantine measures were escalated each time, as though our society was mutating, and soon those who remained were moved to the overly secure housing which we live in today. All rooms are hermetically sealed, air is provided solely through the meticulously filled a ventilation system, and we wash in antimicrobial showers four times a day when a chime sounds over the tannoy system like a call to prayer. My name is Dr. Thomas Francis, and I helped design the squeaky clean prison that, for our own safety we are all confined in. I live here with my son, Jonas, and the painful memory of my wife, whom I lost to the America flu in the initial outbreak. Her name was Sally, and she was my everything. Now all I have left of her is a single dog-eared photo and Jonas, whom is only just coming to an age where he can comprehend the strange new world around him. He still calls out for his mother at night and still seems pained when he is reminded that she isn't with us anymore. Where's my inhaler, Dad? I hear Jonas call from the bathroom, his voice echoing down the unfurnished hallway. Where did you last have it? I replied. If I knew that, I wouldn't have lost it, would I?" He called back with surprising sassiness for a boy of five. I can't help but chuckle. He's his mother's son, alright. Have you tried your bedside dresser? A pitter-patter of small feet on the wiped-down laminate hall floor heads in the direction of Jonas' bedroom. Nope, not here, he calls again. What about in your bed? I hear him rummaging around through the sheets. Still no. This leaves me out of ideas. Our house, a single story flat, is hardly a haystack big enough to lose a needle in. When I had headed the team that designed this so-called quarantine village, it had only been hypothetical. A silver bullet for the never-gonna-happen werewolf attack. Never in a thousand years did I think I would find myself living in it. Had I known, I'd have designed rooms a little bigger. Hell, maybe I could have found room for a cinema or something. Hindsight's twenty-twenty, I suppose. Sometime after my team and I had submitted our plans for the facility, the project had terminated. The blueprints were catalogued and filed and that was that. So we had thought. At some point, the Pentagon had luckily or preemptively given the project the go-ahead and building had commenced in secret. Had they known about the america flu before the outbreak and not warned the public? Had they engineered the damn thing? As was the gossip being circulated in our video call book club. Neither bared thinking about it. My son and I were safe now and that's all that mattered. I'm gonna have a bath, Jonas announced as his bare feet padded back across the linoleum hallway to the bathroom. I hear the faucets turning and the quadruple fill the water splash into the tub. I'm not sure what they put in the water here to keep it clean, but it seems thick. Like it's mineral heavy, but it smells strange and artificial. Remember not to get any water in your eyes, I remind Jonas. When we first arrived, Jonas had done just this and been left red-eyed and boiling for over two hours straight. I'd gone for a bath with a paper curtain. Boy did that sucker sting. Yes, Dad, he replied absentmindedly. I can hear him playing with the water. Such simple things seem to please young minds. If only a distraction from the horrors I'd seen was as easy for me. Maybe I'd manage to sleep through the damn night. I still dream about her. About Sally. Almost every night. We're usually in the park, the three of us, having one of our traditional family picnics. The glorious sunlight bathes Sally, highlighting the delicate freckles hidden in her rich maca complexion. The deep brown curls of her hair shimmer with even the slightest movement and the scent of her subtle perfume carries on the breeze. Though this is a dream and she's just a ghost of a memory, I remember so clearly what it was like to be in love with her. Jonas is off chasing butterflies, though he's still a little unsure of his feet and tends to plop down on his rear every 10 steps or so. He doesn't mind though, he just giggles it off. and He <laughs> was always a tough kid. It's around this point in the dream when I look up and see storm clouds brewing. I look to call Jonas back, but he's nowhere to be seen. Have you seen Jonas? I ask Sally, who now, for some reason, has her back to me. She doesn't reply. As I extend a hand to rest on her shoulder, she speaks. I'm so cold, Tom. She speaks through chattering teeth. She is cold. Freezing, in fact, and her shoulders shivering so much I'm surprised my arm isn't shaken out of his socket. Finally Sally turns to face me. What's happening? She asks, with thick blood and mucus dripping from her nostrils. The delicate blood vessels have burst in her eyes, leaving her eyeballs blotchy like marbles and she looks thin as bones. At this point, I sit bolt upright in a puddle of my own sweat, with a hand grasping at the empty side of the bed. How's it going in there? I shout through the bathroom, from which I can still hear the sounds of playful splashing. Tub's almost full, Dad. He replies after a distracted pause. You don't want it to be full, remember? I reminded Jonas as at 5 his marble mind hasn't quite grasped the concept of water displacement yet. Yes, Dad, he responds as he turns the faucet shut obediently. Despite inheriting his mother's sass, he's always been a good kid. I remember the day Sally got sick, clear as yesterday. It was only a few weeks after a public service announcement had interrupted the game, to tell us that until further notice, everyone was to remain within their homes. A 24-hour curfew was now in effect, violation of which would result in arrest and detainment. The deadly America flu was still at large, and until a vaccine could be mass-manufactured, we were all at risk. Jonas had been overjoyed as it meant no school, but given the nature of my work, I knew the true severity of the situation was likely being held from the public to avoid nationwide panic. I have a feeling Sally knew this too. I hadn't told her such, but she seemed to read my word expression as though it were an open book. I was working from home via remote access to my city office when I heard a dull thump downstairs. It sounded almost like a bag of potatoes had been dropped from a height, but when I headed down to investigate, I found Sally writhing on the floor like a fish out of water. Jonas had thankfully been too entranced by some cartoon show to notice, so when she'd finally stopped fitting, I quietly moved her into the recovery position and rang for an ambulance. Paramedics never came, though. Half an hour later, it was a team of doctors dressed in full body protective suits that arrived. They barged past me, heading straight for Sally. Loading her onto a stretcher, they covered her in plastic housing that hissed as it became airtight. Within the minute, Sally was already being wheeled out the door to the ambulance, waiting outside. Wait a damn minute! I managed to finally protest. Where the hell are you taking her? When she was safely on board, the ambulance doors were slammed shut and sped off. Another idled up to take its place. Don't worry, one of the doctors had said, gesturing to the second ambulance. You'll be going too. That was the last time I'd ever be in the same room as Sally. Luckily, as the doctors had put it, only she had been infected. The virus only became contagious at the end of the incubation period which seemed to be marked by swelling of the brain. This had been what had sent Sally crash into the floor in spasm. For the next few days, I sat and watched her deteriorate through the thick window of her quarantine ward, in a row with other infected. How she was going to get better surrounded by these other poor souls didn't make sense, until a dark realization had hit me. This room wasn't a ward, so much as it was a hospice. Everyone in this room had already been chalked down for death. The illusion of care was just theatrics. I'd cried until my eyes dried up. Sally, my love and my life was gone. As I drove to pick up Jonas from Sally's parents, I still had no idea what to tell the poor kid. I'd left him there under the pretense that Mum and Dad were off for a nice trip together, and that we'd be back soon. Both of us. As I pulled up to their spacious drive, Jonas was at the door waiting for me with a huge gap-toothed grin. This soon faded when he noticed that his Mum wasn't in the car. got out to greet him, but he hit me with the question I'd been dreading before I could even utter the words. Where's mom? He asked. I just looked into those big eyes of his, Sally's eyes, couldn't seem to say a word. Jonas knew though. He just knew what I was gonna say and had ran full power into me to hug my waist tightly and all his eyes out soon after I was crying again too her parents came over and we all wrapped our arms around each other and and wailed a cacophony of mournful sorrows what a sight we must have been the door buzzer prizes me from my painful thoughts and I'm grateful making my way over to the door the buzzer is pressed again impatiently all right all right I'm coming I yell ahead, picking up to a jog for the last few steps. Peering through the small pothole-sized window, I immediately see one of the facility's guards staring back at me from inside his protective suit. His pale, panic-stricken face is decorated with glistening beads of sweat. He presses the intercom button and there's a slight squeak of feedback over the tannoy system. What's the matter? We've had an outbreak in one of the lower levels. The words hit me, it felt as though a proverbial and sinking ship just struck its iceberg. My god, how many have contracted it? I ask in near-whisper. We're just trying to see how far it's spread and stem it. Is everything good in there with you? Yeah, we're well, fine thanks, Yeah, keep us up to date. There's a delicate cough from the bathroom. What was that? What was what? Another raspier cough follows it this time. His inhaler. My son's asthmatic, I yell to deaf ears. Check your damn files. As I turn to run and help him find the inhaler, I hear the voice carry over the intercom. It's not of the guard at the door, but rather of his superior. Commands deep cleanse. Are the only words I can make out, but they're the only words that I need to make out. I sprint into Jonas' bedroom, find his inhaler in his dress or drawer and join him in the bathroom. He takes a couple of puffs on this thing and the coughing subsides just in time for the sirens to begin their screeching. What's happening, Dad? He asks fearfully. It's going to be fine. I try to reassure him with a wavering voice. He tries to climb out of the tub. I stop him. When I say, I need you to take a deep breath for me, okay? I ask as I run a countdown in my head. The deepest you've ever breathed. He nods timidly. 16 seconds. Dad, what's happening? He asks again. 12 seconds. I'm going to be with mom. I say with tearful eyes. I love you, son. We both do. Never forget that. 3 seconds. Now, big breath and close your eyes tight. Jonas inhales as deeply as his little lungs will allow and I push him under the water to hold him there with the only solution my panic might offer. Zero. The temperature in the room rockets up. It feels like I'm out in the desert in the midday sun. Then it gets hotter. I struggle for breath and begin to feel faint, but I fight it. I have to keep Jonas safe. The exposed skin on my arm is burnt bright red, before turning white and sweating up in large blisters and looks like dome cities. I feel my eyes begin to dry up and screw them shut. All I experience now is the searing pain until for a brief moment I feel blissful nothing. I open my eyes, catch a brief glimpse of my arms roasting down to the bone before my eyeballs boil and burst in their sockets. The excruciating pain knocks me unconscious, almost instantly this time. As I slip into the bottomless black, I just hope I've done enough. I pray Jonas is safe. He was all that mattered. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Other Stories. Cleanse was written by Matthew Butcher, narrated by Joseph Mortley, edited by Carl Hughes, and used by Chris Zabriskie and Tom Robson. If you're a fan of The Other Stories and would like to support us and keep us producing new episodes, then you can do that now by entering Hawk and Cleaver's Birdcage. There you'll get access to episodes before they're released, Behind the Scenes Madness, and Hawk and Cleaver's books as we produce them. Sound good? You can join the Birdcage by going to www.hawkandcleaver.com forward slash TheBirdcage. That's www.hawkandcleaver.com forward slash TheBirdcage. Until next time.